so often, the origin story of the best businesses that we feature on the show is one of innovation born out of necessity. Leading the lineup on this week's programme is another such tale. Child's Farm, which has grown in less than a decade to become the UK's number one baby and child personal care brand, was founded by Joanna Jensen in response to her own daughter's sensitive skin and a lack of products that worked for the family. Joanna is here to tell us about her journey and why she's so passionate about supporting other female founders at the start of theirs. Also ahead today, the creator of another brilliant, innovative and disruptive personal care brand who's changed the very landscape of the sector in her home market of Mongolia. This is The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. We start the programme by welcoming Joanna Jensen. Joanna, it's a delight to meet you and to talk about Child's Farm. It's one of those happy occasions on the show where I already know the product, I have it at home, my kids enjoy them. Uh, so that's very nice. But let's start perhaps a little unimaginatively at the beginning. I mentioned right at the top that this was one of those great businesses born out of necessity. Tell us more. So my second daughter, Bella, was born with atopic eczema. Anyone who's got a child with really sensitive skin knows how utterly frustrating it is and how helpless you feel that you really can't do anything. What surprised me was that pharmaceuticals and consumer products hadn't moved on since I'd been a child in the 70s. And so rather than me being able to go out there and find some really nourishing ointment or treatment for her skin, there was really nothing. It was emollients or steroids, and I wasn't prepared to use steroids on a baby. So it was, as you say, it was a necessity for me. I had to find something that was a solution for her sensitive skin. And for whatever reason, I decided to do it myself. I'd always been a bit of a fanatic about natural and natural origin ingredients. Mum was a NHS nurse, but also a bit of a hippie. So we were brought up on homeopathic remedies and homemade vegetables. But it really was a sort of sustainable life with her when she treated my eczema. It was all about using the most nourishing shea butter, cocoa butter, and moisturising as much as possible. So I went into creating this knowing what I wanted to do, I don't think at any stage I realised quite what I was going to create. But ultimately, it provided a solution for my own children and de facto many other people's children too. Well, let's talk a bit about Charles Farm's growth story because it's pretty extraordinary. The brand sort of created relatively recently, I think back in 2010 by 2014, it started to really scale. It was present in some of the big players here in the in, in the UK retail market. Was it just that it was too good and that as soon as somebody tried it, they were not just a convert, but they were an evangelist for the brand? Was it all organic growth? How do you explain the relative well, seeming ease? I'm sure there was plenty of hard work involved, <laughs> but it seemed to be a very easy, natural and organic growth story. Was it that easy? I mean, it's like a swan, isn't it? It looks so easy on top, but underneath you're pedalling like mad. I think it all boils down to they are absolute quality products, but they are priced at everyday pricing and they have real purpose. What we didn't have in that marketplace was something for suitable for sensitive and eczema prone skin. And that was our sweet spot. But we did it in a fun way and we've continued to do it in a fun way. So you're not having that neon sign above your head saying this child's got poorly skin. It's totally inclusive. It means that there's a magic around bath time again. You know, when we were children, we had Macy. It was really fun. It was ahead of its time because it was the packaging was so great. 
But we wanted absolutely exceptional products and then really fun packaging, but in that order. The reason it was so successful so quickly, and as you say, we got nationwide distribution in 2014 through Waitrose and Boots, was simply because the products were so good. We had a business that was absolutely built on consumer experience. So our users were so thrilled with the results of using the products. They shared them on every form that they could. And that was social media that was in the press. I mean, it was it was extremely overwhelming. We actually are a brand with purpose. And that's not just talking about our sustainability and our ethics and values, but the fact we actually change people's lives. We're not a medical product, but we've created something which is natural origin and really, really works, smells fantastic, looks fun, and is helping children be happy in their skin and helping parents. And actually what Child's Farm, I think, did was we did the heavy lifting for parents in one small part of their lives, but also that important part, which as a working parent, sometimes bath times can be a blessing and a curse, but to have a bath time, which is fun, with a bottle you can tell a story around that all your kids can get in the bath at the same time, even if they've got poorly skin. To me, that was just magical and purpose-driven and ticked all the boxes. And I am immensely proud of what we've achieved with Child's Farm and how we've changed the ability to not only look after children sensitive and eczema prone skin, but also adults. 27% of our users are adults. It's an incredible story. And I guess the natural end game was that some of the big players, you know, been very disruptive in this marketplace that was very entrenched pretty quickly. I imagine you, you know, there were probably knocks on the door quite early in the journey, but you did sell to one of the big powerhouses. Tell me a bit about that, because obviously we often talk to entrepreneurs who are thrilled that that enables them to look at even greater scale, more impact with more people in more markets. That must be, well, it's a thrilling kind of vindication of all of those ambitions on, on the one hand, but it must be exciting to think about where next, given you then tap into this astonishing new distribution model, just a degree of scale that perhaps wouldn't be, or it could take decades rather than being something that you could do do overnight. Tell us a bit about some of the, the thought process in that. Totally. Well, we'd reach a stage where we needed significant investment to go to that next level. And really, we'd set up a process where we were looking for private equity money. And then our corporate finance team said, oh, do you want to have a chat with PZ Cousins? Me and my CEO, Will Bowler, said, yeah, I'd no, love to. And we sort of all fell in love with each other a bit, which I know sounds a bit sort of odd, but Jonathan Myers, who runs Pizzo Cousins now, the CEO, and Sarah Pollard, the CFO, it was a bit of a meeting of minds. And they had P&G and Unilever experience, respectively. But what they also had was a vision to grow the baby and child sector within PZ Cousins. So over a period of time, we got to know them better. We looked at all of our options and we decided that Pizzo Cousins was the best fit to give us that growth and to give us that distribution that we really wanted because my ambition is for Child's Farm to be a top three personal care product for baby and child across the world. You know, why not? And do what we've done for British babies and children for the rest of the world and use those ethics and values that we've created to help understand that that area in the supermarket where you're buying for your baby or you're buying for your child should be a walled garden of safety. Now, it's not. There are products in food and in toiletries that shouldn't be there, but that's ultimately what the goal is. 
And what also set Pizzo Cousins apart was they are absolutely passionate about sustainability. And I couldn't be happier. My role is as an ambassador. I still own 8.5% of the business. And I will have that for another two and a half years. And I'm really enjoying what I'm doing and this opportunity to stretch my skills into areas which I'm really passionate about too, which is fully endorsed by Pizzo Cousins. So they've, as an employer, they've been brilliant. And as a shareholder, I've got everything crossed. But I think the groundwork's been done and they've got the distribution network to really fulfil my ambition for the brand. Well, something else I wanted to ask you about, Joanna, is your involvement with Buy Women Built, which provides a platform to support and showcase female-founded brands. Why did you get so actively involved? I wonder, was this just another expression of the values you've been talking about? You built this business up as the parent of young children, older children, now teenage children. But had you experienced moments where you felt you confronted issues, hurdles, simply because you were a female founder rather than a male counterpart? Or had you seen that elsewhere? Other promising businesses, maybe the next great female entrepreneurs that just weren't catching a break only because of of gender. Tell us why this matters so much to you. Yeah, I think for me, I came from an investment banking background. So I had a real understanding about fundraising, about what you could achieve reading a balance sheet to really understanding my worth and the worth of my brand. And That is abused heartily within the venture capital arena where women who don't have a background like mine are fobbed off, are treated appallingly badly and struggle to raise capital simply because of the virtue that they are women, regardless of how good their brand is, regardless of how good their sales are. And I've seen situations where underwear brands to female condoms, all sorts of brands that men don't understand have been rejected. Now, rightly or wrongly on that front, all I do know is versus our competitors in the US, if we had as many female-founded brands here as they do there, that would bring another £250 billion to the economy. And so for me, meeting Sahar Hashimi, who founded Coffee Republic way back in the day, first chain of coffee bars in the UK, I met her and she told me that she was doing this with Barney McCauley And would I be interested as a brand of being part of it? And I said, well, yes, but I'd like to do more than that. Because Sahar founded By Women Built, BWB, on the back of the fact that not everyone can invest in women, not everyone can mentor women, but everyone can buy from women. And I think having done, listen, when I started, I was doing school fairs, fates, you name it. I was flogging my guts out, trying to get my brand to work. And the people that supported me the most were women. And if we can highlight these fantastic female brands that this country's littered with them and by and large are full of purpose, if we can highlight those to consumers and say, you've got a choice, you can buy a quality, ethically backboned brand, which is founded by a woman, or you could buy that. Let's tell them, let's give them that choice to make. And there's some cracking brands out there. And through BWB, I've been absolutely delighted to meet a number of female-founded brands, female founders that I didn't know prior to that. And I'm very lucky to be in a position where I can be an angel investor. And one of the core reasons for me to invest is they have to be a female-founded brand. 
I don't want to just give them my money. I want to give them my time as well and my experience and to be used as a sounding board, but not to be uh, overwhelm them, but to be there as and when they want to dip into my smorgasbord of skills. I say that because most of them are to do with cooking. For me, it's an absolute joy. It's payback. It's you know, I didn't face particular difficulties, I have to say, because A, I was an investment banker in my previous life, and B, I'm slightly older. I was brought up by a mother who was about as feminist as they come. And so for me, it always was that men and women were on a level playing field. And I felt that if you didn't feel that was the case, don't sit there and whinge about it. Get out there and do something about it and prove how much better you are or your skill set versus somebody else's, or your product versus somebody else's. So it's a real jumble for me, for my rationale. But what I have seen is how female founders have had their confidence knocked by, and I'm sorry to say this, men in a position of investment power who haven't understood their brand and haven't understood the needs of their brand. And bearing in mind... I can't remember the statistic for purchase decisions in this country being made by women. It's enormous. They are, by and large, your consumer. If they have a family, they're buying for the family. If you are looking at a brand, I would say the first question you have to ask is, who are your consumers? Because every brand should know that. And I want to know that I understand brands that sell to women, less so brands that sell to men. But, you know, I'm intellectually curious and I'll learn. Do you think we are making progress, though, because it comes back to all of these things? If you actually park any preconceptions people might have and just look at the evidence, it's a bit like, I don't know, FTSE 100 boards that have a better, more accurate representation of society in terms of their gender makeup. These companies do better. Big corporates that are led by women do better. These small businesses, they post better margins if they have, if they're established by female founders. It's very hard to find anything similar to this where both whatever people's instincts or biases might be, when also looked at in a big basket with the facts on the ground, all say the same thing. And yet we still find ourselves having these conversations. Is it better? Have you seen improvements even as you've become more and more engaged with this just over the last kind of five years? Is is there a silver lining there, Joanna? Or do we still have to approach with a degree of caution? I think there's a couple of things, actually. One of them is intelligence and understanding what's available for you as a female founder. And there are government funds out there which run as investment funds that can go into your business as long, by and large, it's, it's, if you can raise around 30% of private money, they can invest up to 70% through government funds. And that will include female founders. It will include rural businesses. There are many, I suppose, minorities in which there are now funds specifically geared to that. So the government has heard they could listen a lot more and invest a lot more in this. And I think that would be absolutely fantastic. But also, I think things like BWB and there are many other sort of female founded groups out there are doing a great job in getting those communities together. Sahara and Barney's next objective is this is a real consumer awareness piece for them. I look at it more as sort of from a corporate side and how we can help those founders a bit more on that side and also sponsorship. But the real push is to make awareness for consumers and the aim is to have, you know, Olympia full of female founded brands. And I think that more than anything else would not be for consumers, but I think it would be a wake-up call for private equity, for venture capital, and actually for trade buyers to see that some of these brands out there are absolutely stellar and they're female-founded. So 
there is so much more that can be done, Tom. You know that and I know that. And I think these opportunities where we can talk about brilliant female-founded brands, we can talk about female-founded success stories. I think the more we can talk about this, the better. But I would love to be in a world where we didn't have to mention men or women as to who the founder is. And it's just a brilliant founded business. So there's more to do. But I would say to your listeners, what you can do is, is vote with your pennies and actually actively source female-founded brands, actively source sustainable brands, vote with your wallet, and then you will force the investment world, you will force the retailer world to actually take heart and actually put their money behind female-founded, sustainable brands like they haven't before. Let's finish by putting this particular superstar brand front and centre then, Charles Farm. We talked about the origin story. We've talked about some of these attendant challenges that you're you're tackling on a day-to-day now, Joanna. What about the, the future? Obviously, we talked in broad brush strokes about growth. You tap into now new sort of geographies and scale, the, 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 those kind of opportunities because of this investment. How do you see it going and how confident are you that those values, which are baked in, as you said, um, you can keep control of them because I guess as things become bigger, as you're in more markets, as there are more people, it's ever more difficult to do things face to face and so on. So what are the ambitions and how confident are you that all of those fundamental founding principles will still be front and centre in five, ten, who knows, 50 years time? Well, I think I'm very lucky that I found an investment partner who has got sustainability and babies and children right at the top of their agenda. And I would have really struggled to have done a sale without that. And PZ have been front and centre on that. They've got so much skill within their organisation and we can learn as much as they can learn from us. And I think that's what's wonderful. They've been really honest about that and saying we want to learn more about how you do things sustainably. And that's great. I mean, that really is good. So I have every belief that that's going to continue as it will. Over years, of course... There is going to be some dilution of my message already that that's happened because it's got new owners now and I only own 8.5% of it, so I only get 8.5% of the airtime. But what I'm seeing is how they attract people to their business is on their own ethics and values as well, which are aligned with ours. And already they've put in some Piso Cousins die harder into senior positions within Child's Farm And they absolutely get it. I mean, they live and breathe sustainability. They live and breathe inclusivity, diversity. They want as much as I do for everyone to be happy in their skin. And for them, you know, they can monetize that. Great. You know, we can't sit there and just sort of say, oh, we can make it wholesome and pure, but because of that, we can't make any money. No, there's no reason why you can't make people's lives better and make money out of your brand at the same time and that's always been our intention although I think initially it was all done for little Bella so it just got a bit out of control but I think for me I think the future is really bright for Child's Farm. Well we'll certainly drink to that. Joanna Jensen founder of Child's Farm Thank you very much indeed. And you can learn more about Joanna's story, the growth of the brand and its commitments to natural, sustainable, sensitive skincare by heading to childsfarm.com. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. (music) 
Next up on the show, we have another brilliant, innovative and disruptive female founder who's changed the landscape of the personal care business in her home market. Hulan Davidosh is the founder and chief technologist of Lamour, which is Mongolia's first organic skincare brand. Well, Hulan, thank you so much for joining us. We're thrilled to welcome you to Monocle and to share your story on The Entrepreneurs. To start with, though, can you tell us a bit about how you came to start the business? Were you working in the sector? Maybe tell us a bit about your background and what led you to that eureka moment, if you like. So I was definitely not in the sector. I did my master's in New York at Columbia University in renewable energy management and policy, and that's why I came back to Mongolia after having lived abroad all my life in Germany, in Switzerland, and, and the U.S. later. And I came to work for Mongolia's very first wind farm, which was exciting. But then when I came to Mongolia, because of the extreme climate and the, the capital city, you know, Ulaanbaatar is so extreme, it gets plus 30 in the summer, but minus 30 degrees in the winter. And everything was just taking, like all the different negative externalities were just affecting me so badly that at one point I started having allergy for the very first time in my life. And it was very annoying because because of the allergy, I started having rashes and eczema. That was kind of the starting point. I started asking myself why this is happening, you know, meeting up with doctors, etc. And eventually they suggested that I take care of my body try to live more healthier, try to use natural products, especially natural skincare products, because whatever I was using, it was making my rashes even worse. So that was kind of the initial starting point. And then I looked around and I could not find anything here. And the question came about, you know, this amazing country, which is so huge and just with this vast countryside and all these natural resources and raw materials that you can find anywhere why nobody's making organic skincare. So that was my initial starting point and I started to research about it. It started to become a passion of mine. I literally started taking Formula Botanica courses online, which is organic skincare formulation diploma, which is actually UK based. And then I just started doing products at home. And eventually what I did for myself was good enough for me and friends and family liked it. So at one point, I literally just quit everything I've done, you know, made my kitchen into a small production lab. And that's how it went eight years before. And I have not done anything else ever since. Amazing story. And, and like so many great stories of innovation, it begins with, with a need, I guess. Let me ask you though a bit about the product specifically. You've mentioned some of them and you've mentioned the natural resources that are there for you to use and explore. What was that process like? How did you go about actually sourcing the products and figuring out what you exactly wanted to make? Whenever I create a product, I always think of the intention of what the product needs to do. And essentially, because we are trying to create products that can be used by people of all ages, and, and it doesn't matter male or female, but just people with very sensitive dry skin and also that are sensitive towards, let's say, perfume. That's what I always think about. And then I also try to especially use things that are native to Mongolia. So, for example, for us, sea buckthorn is one of the most normal ingredients, let's say, because we have it all over Mongolia and we use it on a daily basis in juices. We make different kind of things out of it, but it's more like food related. 
So things like that that are so normal to us Mongolians that I can find literally everywhere, just like nettle and thyme and rosehip or even just yak's milk. Something that for us is so normal is essentially unique to everybody else. So I always try to think about what can I use, what do we have, and what also has been used traditionally in Mongolia. For example, you know, the milk, we use it traditionally in Mongolia, like in various ways in our nomadic culture. So essentially, taking what the nomads have been using since forever, because I mean, organic is nothing new to them. It, it has been their way of life. Putting it into a normal, modern product that everybody, it doesn't matter where you are, can actually use it these days, you know? So for example, we have something called sheep's tail fat oil that we use in Mongolia traditionally that we use on baby's skin, on elderly skin, and it has so much collagen because the Mongolian sheep, they put all their collagen into their tail because they have to survive these harsh winters. In the nomadic culture, this is so normal to us. But then obviously in the modern form, you know, young people, they don't use it anymore because of the smell, because of a lot of various different kind of reasons. But then we basically make a modern product out of it so that we can still use all the benefits, keep our tradition, but then also create a modern product. Tell me a bit about ambition. How do you, you, you know, a few years down the track now with this business, it's obviously doing incredibly well, but tell me a bit about the ambition and how you plan for the future. What are your ideas in terms of its growth, in terms of where it might take you next? Yes, so definitely, I mean, when I just started, it was more about just the product itself and getting the products out to people and just making sure that people use healthy products. But then along the way, when I figured that, you know, a lot of, Young people are looking up to us, not just Mongolians, but everywhere else in this world. When we started receiving awards for, you know, sustainability, for just really trying to create healthy but good quality products and in doing it in a way that it's not just creating products, but also through the brands, creating social impact and creating social change. That's when I realized really that we can do so much with this brand. So eventually our Philosophy now is love yourself, love others, and love the environment because we really want to make sure that whatever we do, it doesn't matter to who we cater to. We really want to make sure that people around the world, first of all, learn to love themselves, meaning taking care of their body, making sure they understand what they use and making sure they understand what they take in and understand just everything about their health. Loving others, meaning this whole social impact thing. So we do so many projects in Mongolia and elsewhere where we just try to help other people. And for example, in Mongolia, we are now making this campaign where it's all about loving others unconditionally. So basically non-discriminating. And then the third part about loving the environment. So our production is zero waste. Every raw material becomes an end product. And for example, in Mongolia, we created Mongolia's first zero waste corner where actually we have refill stations and people can come to us and just get their beloved body oil or facial oil within whatever container they want so that we as a manufacturer don't create waste and they as a customer don't create waste. So things like that, using recycled paper in Mongolia, for example, we sell soap without any packaging, etc. It's just things that we can do through the brand that eventually will maybe change one person's life, but then through changing that one person's life, 
it will eventually create a better thing for our world. So we just really hope to engage with all our customers, especially in Mongolia, and really make sure they understand what we're all about. So eventually they change their daily habits, they change their way of thinking so that we can really create the social impact. So eventually this is what we want to do globally. So we've started with Mongolia and we want to do it everywhere we're distributing. That was Hulan Davadosh, founder and chief technologist of Lamour. And you can learn more about the brand and Hulan's journey by heading to lamour.com or .mn if you prefer to read the Mongolian version. That's it for this episode of The Programme. We'll be back next week and do look out, or that should be listen out, for Eureka every Friday. The Programme was produced by Laura Kramer with mixing and editing by Jack Dewars. My great thanks to them as ever. And of course, thanks once again to Joanna and all the Charles Farm team and to Hulan and Lamour. Listen again and find out more about the show at monocle.com. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine for more about what Monocle's editors mean by doing better business. You can also follow us and catch up with the archive of past shows at your preferred podcast platform. To contact the team, do get in touch. Write to me or email laura at lrk at monocle.com. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs. <laughs>